still working through our series on outreach, and this morning we're going to be discussing the primacy of prayer in evangelism. So we're going to look at Colossians 4, 2 through 6. I encourage you to keep your Bibles open. We're going to march right through this text this morning. Let's read these words together. Paul says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Please pray with me now. Father, we come to your word, and we're going to hear from this passage how you have taught us to pray and how you've encouraged us to live our lives in a particular way. I pray that this morning you would encourage us. I pray that you would disrupt us if we are too comfortable, and I pray that you would comfort us if we are in fact disrupted. I pray that your gospel message would be heard and that we would be changed because of it. In the matchless name of Christ, I ask these things. Amen. Me and Megan moved to Orlando a few years back, actually about five or six now. And at that time, we moved into a house, and right down the way from us as a couple, we got to know pretty quickly. Their names was Chris and Angela. And it didn't take me long to realize that Chris and Angela didn't know Jesus. About this time, I was also working with a youth group in the area at a church and started discussing evangelism with them. I, I made a personal commitment that I wanted to pray for Chris and Angela as, as much as I could remember, to bring them into the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And I had one particular student who was very persistent in his encouragement that I should continue to do that. And he was somewhat of a squeaky will, and I appreciate that about him. And he would always ask me each week, Luke, are you still praying for Chris and Angela? And so month after month, because of his encouragement, I continued to pray for Chris and Angela. One day, and I remember exactly where I was, I received a call from Chris. And he told me that his father had passed away. And he asked me to play a role in the worship service, or the, rather the funeral service for his father. He asked me to preach the man's funeral benedict or eulogy, if you will. And this is overwhelming for me at the time. I, I certainly didn't know his father, and it was a very just ah, sad situation. But at the same time, I was very excited because I'd been praying specifically for a way to share the gospel with this family, and here I've been invited into a very intimate setting. And as a guy who fancies himself as a preacher, I get to actually preach the gospel to a lot of people, not just them. And so this was a beautiful answer to prayer with terrible circumstances. I later was able to actually marry this couple, um, which is fun. I got to preach the gospel some more. And we continue to have a relationship with them today. This story, to me, is a beautiful way that God answers prayers and opens doors for opportunities for, for me to step into someone's life. Now, you may not be a pastor. You may not fancy yourself a preacher. You may never do those things. But if you have the audacity to ask God specifically to share the gospel with specific people, he might just answer your prayers. For me, that happened in a unique way, that I'm able to share the gospel in the pulpit. But what would that look like for you? What would that look like for you to have doors opened so that you could share the gospel with those around you? 
This morning we're going to be talking a lot about prayer and the primacy of prayer in our outreach, our evangelism. We're going to be discussing from this passage how we have a call to pray, how we have the call for evangelistic prayer, how we are called to live evangelistically, and how we are called to talk evangelistically as well. So let's look at our first point, the call to prayer. Look at verse 2 with me. It says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So here he uses this word continue, steadfastly. And this assumes a continuation. This is from Paul. He is assuming this being an integral part of any Christian's life, that we shouldn't just start all of a sudden praying, but we should continue in that way of prayerfulness. Prayer is not always easy, though, is it? I mean, we, we, we go through highs and lows in our spiritual life, don't we? Sometimes it's just easier. Sometimes we have hurdles in our way. Sometimes we just don't quite feel like it. That's why he's asking us to, use, uh, to be prayerful with steadfastness which conveys the idea of perseverance. It's a sort of a long-suffering. It's, it's coming over the hurdles. And this continued steadfast prayer should be marked with what? Watchfulness and thanksgiving. So here he asks us to be watchful. That basically means that we should be alert or attuned, aware, conscious. We should be awake in the way that we see the world around us and therefore how we pray for the world around us. So we need to be aware of the world and we need to be aware of ourselves. So this watchfulness is really somewhat of a state of mind. It's how we would be engaged with the world around us and in our own lives, our own hearts. We have to be watchful. This makes it very clear that we cannot be isolated as believers. This makes it really clear that we can't be hermits living in Christian bubbles. We have to be engaged with the world around us. We have to be observant, present. We have to be engaged in relationships with the watching world around us. This also gives us a great opportunity to see how God would show up and do amazing things. We have to open our eyes in a way that we can see clearly how God is moving through this world. If we would just open our eyes, we might be able to see that perhaps we've distracted ourselves so much that we can't actually see that. We live in a very busy world, a very technologically uh, immediate gratification kind of world and it's really difficult for us to slow down and to, to still ourselves enough to sometimes see what God is really doing because we distract ourselves. So it really boils down to this. How would we ever be able to take opportunities to share our faith if we don't actually see those opportunities to begin with? We have to open our eyes to see what God is doing. Otherwise, we would be like a doctor, putting on a, a, a mask and then walking through the hospital trying to find someone sick in need of help. That would just be such foolishness. Why don't we just open our eyes and beg the Lord to show us how we could be used? So we need to have a certain watchfulness. He also encourages us here to be thankful in our prayer life. Thessalonians tells us to give thanks in all circumstances. That's kind of hard to do. Circumstances are not always fun. Circumstances are not always easy. How do we do that? Well, I think the answer is that we have to have a kingdom mindset. As we were just praying the Lord's Prayer, that shows us so clearly how to have a kingdom mindset, praying for the Lord to hallow His name, to bring glory to Himself. Still, that's difficult with our present circumstances at times. So I want to encourage you that we should never dismiss or diminish 
the reality of the brokenness in our lives. Please don't do that. Please don't act like pain isn't pain. Please do not diminish those things. But we should live in the tension between the brokenness and the hope of the kingdom. We should live in that in-between state, that tension. In this way, thankfulness doesn't come from understanding why things happen the way they do and how God works. It's not purely through our understanding that we have that thankfulness. But thankfulness comes through the relationship with Jesus himself. It's not that we have a God who will fix our problems, although he, he does, he will, but he doesn't promise to fix our problems in this life. He promises to fix our problems in an ultimate way. And so we can't expect that. We can't, we can't treat God like an easy button. So it's not about being thankful for the fact that he would fix our problems, but the fact that we have one who we can have a relationship with in the midst of our problems. Do you see how that works? So we have to be thankful. We have to have that kingdom mindset. So having a kingdom mindset means that we're actually thinking about the kingdom, and we're thinking about the king who it represents. So in that way, we have to be thankful in the ways that the Lord is working all around us that we may not even recognize. And if we're watchful, and if we're active in that, we might also be able to be thankful in the way that we're participating in the kingdom going forward. We sow seeds. We, we don't know exactly how we're being used. So it takes trust, it takes faith, but, but we're being used. When, when I preach, hearts are being opened, I pray. We have to be thankful, we have to be watchful, and we have to understand that we are participating in the very work that God is doing. So we see that the primacy of prayer and evangelism requires us to be watchful, thankful, and steadfast. Our second point for the morning is the call for evangelistic prayer. Look at verse 3 and 4 with me. It says, At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Paul is a great example for us. This shows us how Paul himself is asking for prayer. Paul was really distinguished in some ways, but he was also very common. And so we need to understand who he was. See, Paul was distinct and distinguished in that he was called by God to be the apostle to the Gentiles. He was like the prime missionary for the time. He was taking the gospel to the furthest reaches of the world at the time. That was his calling. He was distinguished in that particular way, but he was also very common, wasn't he? Because he's still just a sinner saved by grace, relying upon God's grace, just like you and me. So he's distinguished, yet he's very common. Now, make no mistake about it, Paul was extremely powerful for the gospel, but it wasn't because he himself was powerful. It was because he was in touch with how very common and insignificant he really was, so he relied on God's power, and God used him in powerful ways. So if the guy who wrote 13 books of the Bible and was used as this incredible pillar for the early church, if that guy asked for prayer in his outreach efforts in the text, how much more should we? That's Paul. What about us? We have to be immersing our lives in prayer if we're going to be evangelistic. Listen to Paul's specific prayer request. He says, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery 
of Christ. Notice how without being watchful, you could be given all the opportunities in the world and never take one of those opportunities, much less share the gospel, much less see someone actually come to faith. We have to be watchful if we're going to actually be participating in what God may be up to. So we have to be watchful like Paul. Paul reminds us here that he's actually in prison. And it's because of the gospel. And he does this to illustrate something for us. Paul shows us that he is in prison. Even when humans are trying to close doors behind him, God opens those doors. Paul is illustrating for us how he was in prison, and yet he had a kingdom mindset. Notice how he doesn't ask for his release explicitly, but for the ability to declare the gospel. Did you catch that? He doesn't ask to be released from prison. He wants just an opportunity to proclaim the gospel message. That's a kingdom mindset. That's looking past the current situation just enough to where he can see how God might be using him. We just read Acts 16. That's no accident. I'm hoping that you will catch what's happening in Acts 16 for this sermon. In that passage, Paul is in prison with Silas in Philippi, a different time that he's in prison. He was in prison a lot. He had a tough life. And in that time, as they're praying and as they're singing hymns, the doors of the jail are just flung open. Powerful. Praying and singing, they see God work. They literally have a door opened for them. And what happens? Paul takes an opportunity. He shares the gospel. Boom, guy's converted. This guy was like low-hanging fruit. This guy is like right here, like the apple on the tree, and Paul just says, Jesus! And he just falls right into his hand. We never know when that might happen. We never know because God's working. Man, was low-hanging fruit. But which was more miraculous? Was it the fact that God opened the doors of the jail or the fact that God opened the heart of the man who was at the jail. Well, we're starting to get into the gospel now. This is a beautiful story how God works. And we have to see how Paul was watchful. See, he saw this man, this jailer, a desperate man who was in the very midst of losing everything. He was losing his reputation. The guy's a jailer. Everybody's about to escape. He's losing his reputation. He's losing his career. Jailers who let people go, that's bad. Bad for biz. And he's suicidal. Paul sees this, and he takes this beautiful opportunity to share the gospel with the guy. Boom. Fruit. Harvest. So we must remember also that it's God alone who opens the doors of opportunity, the way he did for me with Chris and Angela, the way he did with Paul and this jailer. But also God is the only one who opens hearts. You know, at this church, we believe in a doctrine called total depravity. This doctrine teaches us that we are completely hopeless and helpless outside of God's mercy to come to know him. There's no way out of the state of the fall that we would be able to reach God and choose to come to him because we are depraved. We're totally, totally depraved. So it's out of his mercy alone that we have life. Jesus says in John 6, 44, no one can come to the Father unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one. 
He says later in John 3.8, which we read earlier this morning as well, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. Now listen to this. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The Spirit blows the way the wind blows. We don't understand it. We can see it, but we don't fully understand it. That's because it's God's grace. That's because we don't have a whole lot to do with it. That's the whole idea of the Reformed position on salvation is total depravity and all the other points of Calvinism show us that we have nothing to do with our salvation. It's by God's gift and grace alone. Praise the Lord for that. And so what does that mean in terms of evangelism? It means that God opens the hearts and we can rely on that. It means that we must pray to God for him to open doors of opportunity and to open doors for people's hearts so that they can believe. And I want to encourage you to pray for people specifically by name. Be so bold as to name your brother, your sister, your neighbor, Chris and Angela, whoever they are. Name those people and ask for God to show up. So if it is God who opens doors and it is God who opens the hearts, y'all, we have no pressure to perform, do we? That's good. I know evangelism is pretty difficult to wrap your mind around, if, especially if you're an introvert, but we have nothing to perform, nothing to prove. All we have to do is declare, not convert. We declare, like Paul, the gospel message, not convert. That's up to God. So we are free to just preach the gospel in word and deed. We declare the mystery that Christ lived the, the life that we couldn't live, and he died the death that we deserve to die. That's the gospel. And Paul understood that so clearly. And he thought of himself as an ambassador for God, for the king. This shows that he had no power or authority of his own, but only that he was declaring the message of the king and the kingdom. That's all he wants us to do either. Now listen to this. If belief is the gift of the Spirit who blows like the wind any way it wishes, and if no one can come to Jesus without the Father drawing them, then Paul is truly free to declare. He's free. And that makes all the difference in how we approach evangelism. So we rely not on our power of persuasion. We're not salespeople. We don't rely on our gift of gab. We don't rely on our knowledge of the scriptures. We rely on God's power to save. That's it. That sets us free to declare to get outside of ourselves and just preach the gospel with clarity and boldness. So, so far we see from this passage that we have a call to pray. We see that we have a call for evangelistic prayer, and we're about to see how there's a way for us to live evangelistically as well as talk evangelistically. So first, living evangelistically, let's look at verse 5. It says, Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. When Paul uses that word outsiders, all he means is people that are not Christians. That's it. People outside the church. People that don't know Jesus. So when Paul says this, he's assuming two things, or he's doing two things. One, he's assuming that we're already doing that. He's assuming that we're already living and walking with outsiders. And he's also encouraging us how to live and talk with them. He's going to give us real instructions on how to do that. And he says, walk in wisdom. 
That expression, walk in wisdom, is really neat. All it really means is that we're supposed to live in wisdom. It's kind of our daily life. It's the way we go about life assuming that's with outsiders. We're going to do that with wisdom. But then he shows us how to do that. Doing our daily life in wisdom with outsiders requires that we're actually not in our Christian bubbles. We have to be outside of that. So the way he refers to this in wisdom, it suggests that it might not be easy. It might not be our natural instincts, how we would relate to outsiders. It might be somewhat outside of yourself. It might make you feel uncomfortable. That's why it takes wisdom. Right? Anna knows. See, I think wisdom is really hard to come by especially in relationships, because relationships are, are like this dynamic organism. It's this thing that's always changing, especially with outsiders, with non-Christians. Why? Because non-Christians, they reject the things that you hold dearest, the things that make you you, the things that you hold to the most uh, dogmatically. They are rejecting the core things that drive you the way you live. That requires wisdom, does it not? But we have good news because James 1.5 tells us this. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given. That's good news because we apparently need a lot of wisdom. This is an explicit call for us to pray for wisdom. So we see that living evangelistically necessitates a life of prayer. Not only do we have in this a promise from God that he will answer our prayers and petitions for wisdom. He promises us that. But we also have in Jesus an example of a life well lived who personified wisdom itself. Jesus Christ was the divine logos, the word. He was God. He was man. He was wisdom embodied. And so we can see in Christ in the way he dealt an example. But we also have from God explicit promise that he will give us wisdom as we petition him for that. So now let's also look at how we would be living opportunistically or living evangelistically. Paul follows up his encouragement to us by walking in wisdom towards outsiders by saying, making the best use of the time. And this basically means that we would live opportunistically. There's only so much time. I don't live near Chris and Angela anymore. There's only so much time. We still have a relationship, but you never know when that low-hanging fruit, that opportunity is going to pass. We have to make the most of each opportunity. And that's exactly what Paul did when he was in prison, wasn't it? So the question is, how do we do this exactly? How do we live opportunistically? How do we take advantage of the opportunities that God gives us? The truth is, I don't know. The truth is, I really don't know, because that's what takes wisdom. That's how it works is I can't give you that answer. We have to see that for ourselves. We have to talk to God about it. We have to see how he would have us led towards those, those approaches. So we have to ask God for that wisdom. We have to be immersed in prayer. If we're going to live effective evangelistic lives, we have to be petitioning the Lord for wisdom and seeing how he shows up. This shows us so clearly that prayer for opportunities is required. 
We have to pray for opportunities. We have to pray for watchfulness to see those opportunities. We also have to pray for wisdom and how do we engage with outsiders and pray to declare the gospel with clarity and boldness. And you, as you will see in our next point, I'm going to show you from the passage how we have to be praying ourselves into a place of being very, very Christian in the way that we speak. Very, very Christian in the way that we speak. So, we're going to be talking about talking evangelistically now. Let's look at verse 6. It says, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. I want to look at the very end of this verse first. I think that's going to help. It says, So that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Do you catch that? Each person. This requires individual attention to each person. Individual wisdom for each person. Individual efforts in our relationships with each person. This is not a one-size-fits-all form of evangelism. This is something that takes personal interaction. It requires personal relationships. I mean, how could you possibly know a particular person without knowing a person particularly? Yeah, I mean, each person is different. So he's, he's asking us to get involved and to have wisdom for each person so that we could share the gospel effectively. So if you tell me that you're not interested in doing evangelism relationally, I would just point you to this passage to show you how each person should be engaged individually. I might also point you to the many passages in the Gospels where Jesus deals with individuals as individuals. And in light of that, he speaks incredibly crisply, incredibly clearly, and he presents the Gospel in such a way that it's potent because it's personal. So I think we have a need to be very relational, very personal in the way that we approach those around us and how we talk with them. Wisdom for how to engage each person comes from two places. It comes from talking to them and it comes from talking to God. You have to get to know each person. You have to get to know the wisdom that God would have you live out of for each situation. And as we are encouraged to do this, we have to remember what it says in this passage, the reason, so that you will know how to answer each person, making the best use of the time. Again, this assumes that we are not living in our Christian bubbles. We're not hermits. This means that we are, he's assuming that we are engaged in the world around us, and that makes all the difference. This reminds me of another famous verse that kind of touches on this concept. It's 1 Peter 3.15. 1 Peter 3.15 says, Always being prepared for the, to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, yet, do it with gentleness and respect. I've often heard this verse as somewhat of a militant call to apologetic arms where we want to wipe the, 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 you know, the, the other people off the map. We just want to crush them with our apologetics. And I think that we're supposed to engage them with gentleness and respect. So talking evangelistically, according to verse 6, includes letting our speech always be gracious. Gracious. Now, graciousness is not niceness. Okay, Niceness is more passivity. Niceness is sort of keeping the status quo, not offending for the sake of 
really yourself, keeping the status quo, but graciousness can disrupt. Graciousness can be lovingly confrontational. Graciousness can be, as Ephesians says, speaking the truth in love. That sounds a lot like graciousness to me. So our very speech, the way we talk, should be marked with that kind of graciousness. He also encourages us with this really interesting expression. He says, let your speech always be seasoned with salt. In the ancient Near East, or the, you know, the, the time of the Bible, salt had two primary uses. It was used to preserve food, and it was used to flavor food. But there's also a way that it could be used in this metaphorical way. And he's talking about us having a very winsome and, and wise and witty interaction. So he's calling us to be really engaged in this conversation with outsiders in a witty and wise way. But I think the best way for us to un unpack that and to understand exactly what he's talking about when he uses that expression is to look at Matthew 5. If you have a Bible, turn to Matthew 5. It will not be on the, the screen. We don't have a slide for it. But Matthew 5, I think, really helps to unpack this and helps us kind of bring our, our time to an end as we talk about what it is to be salt and light in the world around us. Verses 13 through 15 of Matthew 5 says, You are the salt of the earth. This is Jesus speaking. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? That's a conundrum. It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Listen, salt that is unsalty is a contradiction in terms. Do you get that? It loses its very purpose. It couldn't really happen. It's this crazy saying that is impossible. And it would be like water losing its wetness. You can't really have water without wetness. And don't talk to me about ice and vapor and stuff. I just don't want to hear it. See, salt, saltiness, it's part of its very essence. Its essence is to be salty. So in the same way, we are called to be distinctively Christian, bringing the Christness out of our very essence, because that's our identity because we have the Holy Spirit living in us. So we are supposed to be speaking in a distinctively salty Christian way. So, we look at this further and it says that no one would put a lamp under a bowl, especially God. Listen, if God has lit a light in your heart, if he has given you himself, if he has caused the light of the gospel to come into your life, He's lit a light in your life. Why would he ever put that under a bowl? He wouldn't. All of us are called to be evangelists in this world. All of us are called to be ambassadors for Christ. This necessitates a life of prayer. We have to have a primacy of prayer in our evangelism. And this passage gives us a couple really good ways to pray moving forward. Listen to this. This passage gives us a very clear vision that we have to be watchful and thankful in our prayer life. We also have to pray for open doors as well as open hearts. We also have to pray for wisdom 
and how to engage folks so that we can make the best use of the time. We also have to pray that we would speak with graciousness and a very distinct saltiness or a very distinctive Christliness that would mark how we engage with the world around us because it's the very essence of our faith. The very essence of our faith. So now let's come to the Lord together and let's pray and ask him to do things so awe-inspiring that it would only happen if he answered that prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have laid out for us so clearly in the Lord's Prayer how we should pray, how we should have a kingdom mindset. And here in Colossians, so clearly how we can pray, how we can live, how we can speak. Father, I pray that you would use our church's humble efforts in outreach, that you would expand the kingdom. I pray that you would, you would take our prayer, that you would take our desire to see the gospel go forward, and that you would cause us to have to knock down these walls because we can't fit all the people that would want to be here to worship you. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Lord, would you create worshipers in Clarksville? Would you use our efforts in that way? To your glory, in Christ's name, amen. We are now shifting in the course of this uh, service of worship to the giving of our tithes and offerings. So if I could ask our ushers to assist us with that. And before we...